0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. And it's really good to be back. This is our first live show of 2015. And we promise that the next two hours are going to be devoted to learning something more. Not just about the world of shoes and chips and sealing waxes, my lovely bride likes me to say but about how what and why we believe as we do a time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know who we are and who we might just become i am eldon taylor and this is provocative enlightenment all right our chat room is open and my partner ravinder awaits you there now you can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat we do have a special chat room so ravinder Tell us all about it, please, and, and Andrea is always in the chat room. Introduce Andrea, too.
2: We do. We have a great chat room, and yes, Andrea is uh, always tending the, the, the chat room, and she is right on the ball if you need extra information or a link to something or anything. I mean, she is right there, and uh She'll get it for you. So if you have any questions and anything, do come join us in the chat room. That is at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat.
1: All right. In this week's spotlight, we turn our attention to the airy wings of thoughts as things. For, uh, well, you know, for as long as I can remember, I have innately known that thoughts can have the power of manifesting in matter. Somehow, when I was only five or six, I used my mind to guide me to lost items like some sort of internal compass. You know, I'd close my eyes and follow an unspoken voice uh, that kind of guided my footsteps. At about the age of 11 or 12, I well remember thinking I needed glasses. But since my father unsympathetically referred to men who wore glasses as four eyes, I feared disappointing him. So I just imagined passing that school eye test over and over again. Well, my eyes didn't improve, but when it came my turn to take the eye test, the doctor looked at me and said, You can see the 20-20 line, can't you? I answered, Sure. That was a test. So it was a few more years before I would have to put glasses on. When I was 14 or so, I imagined becoming six foot tall. That was taller than anyone in my family. I would go to sleep at night, imagining myself as six foot tall. And I did this repeatedly over the summer of the year between my eighth and ninth grade. Every single night, I'd fall asleep with those images. If I woke in the middle of the night, I'd rehearse the image again. When I returned to school, I was six foot tall. I towered over almost everyone in my school at the time. Today, we think of this sort of thing as possible through epigenetics, the influence of our mind on genes. It was at about this time that I began imagining myself as a successful author. And again, I would fall to sleep at night visualizing myself signing books, lecturing, arriving in busy airports and the like. Today, I have more than 400 titles published in print, audio, or video material And many of these titles have been translated into more than a dozen languages. Now, all of this visualization that I have just discussed, together with much more, took place over 50 years ago, long before The Secret or The Law of Attraction were published. How I knew this about the power of thought is not what this is about. What I want to discuss, what I want to bring your attention to really is how well documented the idea that thoughts are things has now become in scientific circles. In December of this last year, the American Physiological Society, reporting in an article titled Mind Over Matter Can You Think Your Way to Strength?, suggested that indeed you could do just that. Science News explained it this way quote, Now, researchers at Ohio University have found that the mind is critical. In maintaining muscle strength following a prolonged period of immobilization, and that mental imagery may be key in reducing the associated muscle loss. The article continued with an explanation of the study, which involved wrist-hand immobilization. At the end of the four-week experiment, both groups who wore casts had lost strength in their immobilized limbs when compared to a control group but the group that performed mental imagery exercises lost 50% less strength than the non-imaginative group, 24% versus 45% respectively. The nervous system's ability to fully activate the muscle, voluntary action, as it's called, also rebounded more quickly in the imagery group compared to the non-imagery group. These findings suggest neurological mechanisms most likely at a cortical level that contribute significantly to disuse-induced weakness and that regular activation of those cortical regions via imagery attenuates weakness and voluntary activation by maintaining normal levels of inhibition. Years ago, research demonstrated the idea of neuromuscular training. The idea began by using visual imaging techniques or proprioception to improve physical performance. In a study conducted at the University of Chicago, subjects were split into three groups, and each group was tested on how many free throws they could make. The first group practiced free throws every day for an hour. The second group visualized themselves making free throws, but did not actually practice. The third group did nothing. 30 days later, the groups were tested again. The first group who actually practiced shooting free throws improved by 24%. The second group who visualized shooting free throws improved by 23% without touching a basketball. There was no change, of course, in the third group. Today, neuromuscular training is often recommended as a preventative care modality, to eliminate injuries such as ACL tears, as well as a modality for performance improvement. So, we can visualize ourselves stronger, we can improve our coordination and athletic performance, we should be able to even tighten muscles around our abdominal area, and more by just regularly visualizing. Indeed, Mindfulness research has demonstrated that boosting brain activity through meditation and or visualization can reduce even addictive behavior patterns, such as those resulting from pain management medications. In one study carried out at the University of Utah, this intervention was found to reduce opioid opioid misuse among chronic pain patients. The fact is, most of this, if not all, can also be accomplished without the conscious mind's active attention. That's important to note. Indeed, much of it can be cued by subliminal priming. This technique has been repeatedly demonstrated effective, and I have had personal experience with it. Having had the honor to work with elite athletes, as well as entire teams, I have witnessed many go from so-called losers to win gold medals, become comeback players of the year, to win team championships, and much more. But again, it's not just me reporting. The data has accumulated where it is now commonplace to see scientific articles detail this information, such as the one published in Science News on December 1st of last year. The title says it all, Athletes Perform Better When Exposed, to subliminal cues. Your mind is truly magical. One of my favorite activities is reading your notes and letters, telling of your successes after unbridling your imagination and turning your mind loose to create all the good things in life. That's one of the grand rewards I so much enjoy. I know Ravinder does as well as a result of working with InnerTalk. So I guess my challenge to you this year... Dare to turn your mind's creative power loose. Your thoughts on this one, Raf? Actually, I've got lots of
2: thoughts. Uh... Actually, I've got lots of thoughts about that, and it helps if you turn my volume on. That's Thank you true. very much. I'm talking to myself here. Um, I'm well, certainly. You
1: have to sit still for me to keep your volume on.
2: <laughs> I am certainly working hard at uh, turning my mind loose, and it is constant work it's something i've been paying a great deal of attention to um and playing back some of the old pe shows you know some of the things i've learned from that you know i'm constantly trundling provocative provocative enlightenment enlightenment, yes i'm constantly trundling through you know how to do all of this and all the things i need to pay attention to but it is a great deal of fun but two points based on what you were just saying the first comment i have to make the story that you you talk about um, not wanting to wear glasses and seeing the doctor. That reminded me of the Jedi mind control. <laughs> I was like, "Honey, tell me, tell me something about your past here. What are you doing here?" That's anyway. That was just funny.
1: And second point.
2: And the second point is, you know, I am act actively y- using this idea of training in the mind you know we like to run and we run all summer and then come the winter you work out in our gym and I don't do anything at all so now every night when I go to bed I picture myself running and I try to get into that same flow so I will be able to report to everyone in just a few months how well that worked you know when we first go running are you just going to leave me standing or am I going to hold my own we will see
1: you do quite well, but all right, I'm going to have to do something to interrupt your uh, your visualization so you don't <laughs> run off and leave me. All right, every week I read some of your letters as are we paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. During our last live show, we were honored to have Professor David Pete join us. Robert wrote, I think David Pete had to be your best guest ever. You should bring him back again. He has written so much, you could probably interview him for days on end. Thanks for such great programming. John wrote, I love your show. I have read many of Dr. Pete's books, but you always seem to get fresh insights from your guests, no matter who they are. Thank you, and keep it up. Megan wrote, thank you, Ellen. I heard you on Coast to Coast, and I absolutely love you and what you have to say. You have given me such hope in my life. I am so happy I found you. Well, I am too, Megan. Benjamin wrote, I have recently been introduced to Eldon Taylor and his amazing body of work through Coast to Coast. I have purchased two of his books, and I'm grateful to Eldon for opening my eyes to the flexibility of the mind. Christopher wrote, Hi, I love your products and recently purchased your book, Mind Programming. I have listened to the CD that comes with the book, and it has helped me quite a bit. I am an expat, American, working with the Saudi military. Your subliminal CD has really helped me deal more effectively with a very depressing work environment. Laurie wrote, I recently purchased your book, Choices and Illusions, and I'm hooked. At 54 years of age, while you're young still, Laurie, surviving a traumatic upbringing, I have been on a healing journey for many years. One of the questions I frequently ask myself is, who am I? As a motivational speaker, I utilize the need to know oneself before real change can occur. Your book further confirms that my perspective is correct. Anne Linda wrote, this is an interesting letter. I am working marketing for the 2015 IANDS conference, that's I-A-N-D-S, in San Antonio. Last September, I proposed a marketing plan which included you for a possible interview with an experiencer and or PSA announcing the conference. That would be somebody that had actually experienced an NDE. I recently spoke with a third party who recommended we not do announcements on your station. The reason was that they had gotten word that you were rude to blank blank. I'm not going to repeat the name during her interview. So I searched, found and listened to the interview from 2011. I found your questions thorough, but can't understand her thinking they were not friendly. But are you aware of that? Okay now, Linda and I exchanged a few emails. The situation is this. I asked this particular guest a question and found her answer to be, well shall we say, much less than credible. She claimed to have evidence supporting her claim, so after the show I pursued the evidence. There was no evidence forthcoming, only stories and excuses and then no responses. The claim she made was so outrageous considering its nature that I checked with experts in the field to confirm my suspicions and they all agreed that what she had reported was preposterous. I could be more specific, but the point is not to embarrass someone. It is more that I see my role as a host, as more than someone who just allows their guest to get away with saying anything. We often use this show to investigate, and as such, when nonsense is a plank in a guest platform, I will call it out. Nicely, I hope, but nevertheless, in a manner that should alert the listener that perhaps there's a problem here. Much of what we cover on this show is subjective, and this information is a story, The story told by the person who had the experience. Whether you believe it or not or how you interpret it is up to you. I am not one who typically challenges a subjective experience. That said, objective information, particularly that which deals with hard science, should be correct. If it's not, and I catch it, I will say so. Again, hopefully in some tactful way. I guess the loss of support by some is the price we pay in order to maintain the integrity of our show. Okay, moving on, I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. You make what we do worth the doing, so thank you again. That's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at com or by joining me on Facebook. I see that look, Ravinder. What is it you want to say?
2: No, nothing at all. I was just enjoying what you were talking about. That was all. I'm just appreciating you. Okay.
1: (laughs) Now to this week's show, You Are Smarter Than You Think. One of my favorite books of this past year is titled, You Are Not So Smart. It's a book fleshing out the many mental shortcuts we all take that give rise to automatic behavior instead of rational reasoning. So a book titled, You Are Smarter Than You Think, naturally got my attention. Are we really smarter than we think, or as some have argued, has our culture become so intent on elevating self-esteem that we have inflated our egos at the expense of our best abilities? Enter today's guest, Renee Mullen Masters, graduated with both her undergraduate and graduate degree in speech pathology from California State University, Fullerton. She was voted most outstanding senior clinician by the faculty. She worked as a speech pathologist in the Fountain Valley School District and in her own private practice for 10 years. During this time, she created, with other teachers, a reading remediation program, which was later used statewide. While teaching a college success class at Orange Coast College in Southern California, she developed the You Are Smarter Than You Think program. When the first edition of her book, You Are Smarter Than You Think, was published, she was invited to present this new idea at the National League of Nurses National Convention. For 10 years, during the 90s, she surveyed nursing students all over the country. Due to the success of that work, between 2011 and 2012, a legitimate study was conducted at the University of Minnesota. In 2013, as a result of this study and additional requests, an online program was developed, and we'll hear more about that today. Our guest suggests, and I quote, thanks to their educational journey, thousands upon thousands of people are walking around this world with this hidden belief, nagging them, saying, you are not very smart. How do you think that impacts their lives? Isn't it possible that these people, brilliant in their own right, not knowing this, are playing way below their potential? Don't you also think that the way they feel about themselves is unthinkable and tragic? Let's open the door to their minds and let the light in, close quote. So on that, let's get some light on our stage and bring her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Renee Mullen Masters. I'm here. You're here. I'm here. How are you?
3: Say again? It's good to
1: have you join us today.
3: Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I, you, I love what you say <laughs> Oh well thank you You're really a good one. <laughs> oh,
1: I appreciate that yeah we like I, to accomplish three things with our guest Renee who is the messenger what is the message and mm-hmm. how do we use it? So if we may, let's begin with you. Please tell us about Renee Mollen Masters. I mean, what were you like as a child? What was it like growing up for you? Were you popular in school? Did you enjoy school? Were you involved in athletics? You went into speech. Did you have a speech problem yourself? Uh, Did you participate in music? Other special activities in short, who were you as a young person?
3: Well, as a young person... I thought I was stupid because of my experiences in school, and I had an autistic older brother who was a genius in math and science, and so I was, you know, we didn't know he was autistic, um, but everybody compared me to him, and, you know, I was good at, at dancing and with music and You know, fantasizing and that kind of stuff. When I was a kid, I would play outside and do my dance recitals in front of an imaginary audience. But in school, I struggled. Um, I had moments of brilliance. Uh, I can remember in high school, I had a wonderful French teacher who was young, just out of college. I so much wanted to get a good grade, an A, and I could not do it if my life depended on it. And I, I got to see, and I, I don't know, at some level inside, I said, you know, I'm just, I don't, I'm not smart. I just don't have the intelligence. And then, um, I, I had this experience in uh, community college where, well, when I was in second grade, my very best friend got moved to third grade. And the reason she got moved is that she was told that she was smarter than the rest of us. So then you fast forward, and we're in in community college together, our freshman year, and we're taking a botany class, which is taught experientially. Mm-hmm. So that if we're talking about a pine, a pine cone, we have a pine cone in our hand, and. At the end of the first test, the instructor announced that I had gotten the highest grade. I almost fell out of my chair. (laughs) And when I talked to her afterwards, my friend, she said she would gotten a C and she had studied. So in my head, I went, well, wait a minute. How did that happen? She's supposed to be smarter. And I'm not supposed to be very smart, but for some reason in this class, I got the A. How did that happen? And I couldn't get anybody to answer my question. So I got into speech pathology, which happened to be taught experientially because a lot of what we did in class, we motored it out in the clinics. And the reason I went into speech pathology is that back then, you know, you could be a nurse, a teacher, a mother, or a speech pathologist, (laughs) (laughs) pretty much. If you were a girl, right? You know, you know how it was. Um. I do.
1: Unfortunately, <laughs> remember those dark days.
3: Yeah, those dark days. Um, so you know, I just I jumped into speech pathology because it sounded kind of fun and interesting.
1: I'm going to ask um, you to hold it right there, Renee. I don't want to cut your story off, but we've got a hard break. When we come back from the break, we'll we'll continue with your story. We've got an hour and a half to learn all about Renee Mullen Masters and your work. And I'm really impressed with your work for what that's worth to you. We're speaking with Renee Mullen Masters about her life, work, and book, You Are Smarter Than You Think. You can learn more about her by visiting her website, and guess what its name is? You are smarter than you think. One word, dot com. You are smarter than you think.com. Remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton
5: Taylor. It's not your fault until you know better. Self-defeating, self-sabotaging thoughts can be eliminated. It may be difficult to accept, but the fact is, magnetic resonance imaging shows us that your subconscious mind makes almost all of your decisions, while your conscious mind makes up reasons to explain your choices. In order to rid yourself of those self-defeating thoughts and ideas, the fear and doubt that can hold you back, you must change the way you talk to yourself. Nothing does this faster or better than our patented InnerTalk technology. Scientifically proven effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies, InnerTalk has repeatedly been demonstrated effective. Change has never been easier. Now you can improve your life almost automatically by rewriting the scripts hidden away in your subconscious. Guaranteed to work. No reason to wait. So don't delay. Go to InnerTalk.com today.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
6: to me anymore When I come through the door
1: Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Renee Mullen Masters about her life, work, and book, "You are smarter than you think. Now, we ask our guests for three songs, songs that have some genuinely special significance to them, real meaning. Music can elicit deeply emotional states, and in many ways, our favorite music can say a lot about who we are. So now we just played... You don't bring me flowers by Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond. Why is this one special to you, Renee? And how does it tell us about whom you are?
3: Well, I love Barbara Streisand. And I've always loved her music and Funny Girl always touched me as a kid. I wit and saw it when I was in high school and it just it was like Wow, I'm gonna, I want to make a difference too. And when she and Neil Diamond, I love Neil Diamond too. And when those two guys sang that song, it was like, oh my gosh, that is so beautiful and so touching. And I think the reason I mentioned it is that my, my love of my life for 30 years passed away a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, it was just kind of it reminded me of where I am now, that the love of my life is, is not here to bring me
1: flowers anymore. All right. But well, it's okay. That's genuine and sincere. It's a beautiful piece of music, no question about it. Yeah. I'm sure your love of your life is there, uh, and the kinds of flowers that you are getting, maybe you don't quite see them. They tell me, however, you might smell them from time to time. Um mm-hmm. And he you will see him again. So we'll leave it at that.
3: Yeah, well, he comes to me in dreams sometimes. So.
1: No, I love it. I he love wanted, it. We,
3: he, he told me, he said, you've got to realize that when you pass over, it's really thin. <laughs> That's what he told me. He says, look at this.
1: Well, great. That's good. We, we could turn our show into a, a discussion of that. But I think what we'll do is we'll turn back to our focus in. Before the break, uh, Renee, you were sharing with us, uh, I think, you know, in those days, girls could only do certain things. That's where your story was. Do you want to pick it up?
3: Yeah, and that's why I did speech pathology, and it was experiential, the way it was taught, and so I did very well in it, but I didn't do well in anything else, and okay, I went on, and then I started working as a speech pathologist, and then all of a sudden, I ran into the book "Frames of Mind" by Dr. Howard Gardner. Right. And when I read his book, I swear it felt like there were worms in my head that were <laughs> connecting. You know, it was kind of like it just felt like these things in my head were connecting, and it was like all my academic experiences. I went, oh, now I understand why I didn't do well. It wasn't because I wasn't smart. I was smart. I just didn't know how to get to it.
1: It was a process of learning, not knowing how to learn, as opposed to innate intelligence, per se. And I think very often, especially as young people, you know, we we are communicated, you correct me if I'm wrong, or in your experience says I'm wrong. The communication says if you can't do something you're stupid about that something. It doesn't address the methodology by which you might learn it. It rather addresses it as a stagnant kind of issue, a limited IQ. Is that was that your finding? Was that, that right your experience?
3: Um, you- You hit it right on the nose. And the thing, the thing that's so crazy, if you think about this, when I was in school, nobody, nobody ever asked me the question, do you know how to learn? I know. (laughs) I mean...
1: Hello. I bet you there isn't a single listener out there. In fact, I'll challenge our listeners out there: if if you ever had a school teacher, you ever had a teacher per se, uh, ask you if you knew how to learn. You know, give us a call right now. I'll give you a free book or choice of free CDs. I don't think that's a question that gets asked, Renee.
3: I know it. I keep I keep putting it out, and and so far I haven't had anybody. And you know what's really strange? I don't want to make people wrong, but it—it's—I scra- scratch my head. I had a meeting recently with a very high-level uh, high school principal who—who who sets the levels for No Child Left Behind, which I can't stand. But and so she's re- way up there. She's considered to be a very good principal. Right. She had no idea that people learn differently. She had no idea that brains are more different than fingerprints.
1: You know, I'm not sure. I I mean, I'm not sure. I'm going to ask you about that in just a minute. Okay. Uh, In fact, I'm going to ask you about Dr. Howard's work and how it relates to your work and uh, and a lot of the specificity that's involved in your book. But... Let's think about education for a second before we go on. Uh, You know, we basically have a three-tier system in this country that was brought here from Prussia uh, that for all intent and purposes, as it was set up by Thorndike, is designed to, you know, educate what we think of as the blue collar at a certain level of education, which is really not to think at all. But, you know, to swallow and rote core and whatnot, to educate the professionals, the doctors, the lawyers, etc., to serve them. And then to educate the elite at an entirely different level. So I'm not sure if you really look at the educational system and its history that it's unfair to find someone involved in in the teaching environment that has ever been taught anything other than what you just Explained that this principle had experienced. I mean, you're the exception, not the rule, and, and at least that's my my take on it. Your comments?
3: Well, maybe that's true. Um, Dr. Gardner, in his book Frames of Mind, he tells this story about how way back when, when when schools were being set up. Um, the psychologist said we need to have a program that emphasizes linguistic and language i mean linguistic and logical abilities because that's where intelligence is and the teacher said no no that it's a much bigger picture than that Mm -hmm. and they had some kind of a a you know a fight or whatever i don't know what it was but what happened is the psychologist ended up uh, winning, and so the schools were set up with that focus and and so that 's kind of what has come down and 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 unfortunately, the teachers were right back then that intelligence is a much bigger picture piece of pie
1: yeah and- Iqs are so heavily weighted uh, on intelligence test vocabulary that generally that too is another one of those uh assumptions that if you have the larger vocabulary that you will have a higher IQ so um
3: which is which is it's a it's a falsity it's not true
1: right but speaking of language let me let me ask you this i recently read an article discussing some new research uh showing a number of ways in which language itself okay can affect the way we think For example, in English, I might refer to my uncle as being a special person and leave it at that. You know, I have a great uncle. See? Not like I have a great, great uncle, but like my uncle is great. Okay? However, in Chinese, there is an obligation to be much more specific. So when referring to my uncle, it is necessary for me in Chinese to identify which uncle, blood relative, from which side of the family, related by birth or marriage, etc. In your work, Renee, you know, did you ever see limitations in the way people think based on their level of language knowledge or the language that was their native tongue? Uh, well, you this, know, is, it, this
3: is interesting that you're bringing this up because it, it shoots me over to another thing. One of the things we discovered... Um, when we were okay in my in my in this program that I have, we have two things that we look at. We look at Howard Gardner's brain talents, and then we look at how you process language.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: Okay, and when we talk about processing language, we're talking about being able to hear what somebody is saying, being able to read, being able to linguistically describe um, what you're looking at. So it's it's actually using language and and receiving language and what we found out especially in nursing is that some of the students when they took our evaluation they were processing language below the 50 percent level so in other words if they were reading they were getting less than 50 percent of what they were reading and what we Mm. found out is that these students were bilingual and that they had not acquired English at a high enough level in order to process the information at a higher level. Gotcha. And so what, you know, which is, it's amazing. And then there are different areas of the country where (laughs) the way we speak English, like if someone from the South goes to school in the North, there is a possibility, and vice versa, there is a possibility of the way that they use English, it doesn't line up with what's happening in the classroom. There's idiosyncrasies. They're called distinctive features. Um, Mm. I'm getting technical here in speech pathology. No, that's okay. That's good. Please. It's like, okay. When I say cat, and then I say cats, that that little s on the end, which is almost insignificant, it signifies to the mind, ah, there's more than one.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: It's a distinctive feature. And what happens um, is that <laughs> it's important to know this about yourself, because if you are a student or working or trying to function in the world, if you don't know what you're, how you process language and at what level you process language and what you need to do to get a higher level, you're like walking into walls when you
6: don't need to.
1: Right. So if I understand you correctly, you're saying that maybe um, a southern accent or, or being raised in the south where... You know, we have the drawl, as, it, as it's called. I I may or I may miss the s uh, in cats, or someone with a drawl may say that, and someone from the north may assume it's the drawl as opposed to the plural. It, Did I understand that correctly? Yeah, that's true. But also
3: in the south, there are idiosyncrasies where they don't use the same English that we use elsewhere.
1: Sure. Yeah, that I know. You know. I once had a university professor, uh, happened to be German, by the way, <laughs> tell me that the reason Germans excelled in science because we have so many, you know, German physicists that have won Nobel prizes or been nominated for it and so forth. Said the reason that uh, and they don't have to be German, but just born in Germany. Albert Einstein wasn't German, but he was very fluent in the German language. He said the reason is because the language is literal and direct. He said, if you were to say to people on a train, look out, they would stick their head out. If you were to say that to an English person, English speaking person, look out, they would duck. So <laughs> <laughs> have you found that kind of thing to be true in in your in the nuances of, of language? Learning? Well, that's just that that just cracks me up.
3: That is so funny <laughs> to think about that. Well, I haven't you know what I what I've bumped up against is um, and this is a it's a little bit off the story, but it's similar is that I was leading a workshop to, with instructors in nursing, and these two instructors started to laugh. And I so I stopped because I wanted to find out what was so funny. And they were team teaching, and one was very logical. She needed things that were first this happened, then this happened, then this happened. And the other teacher was very spatial, but she hated that. She needed color and uh, a lot of movement and here, talk about this and then talk about that. And what they would do is that they would trade off years. And so one year, the logical person would set up the curriculum. And then the next year, the spatial person would set up the curriculum. And they talked about how when the others set it up, they would go crazy. The logical person said, is this person nuts? What is she talking about? And the spatial person would look at her curriculum and say, oh, my gosh, this is so boring. <laughs> and they started laughing because they realized they were criticizing the other guy, not because there was something wrong with them, but because they just see it differently.
1: Yeah, their preferences in the way they learn is the preferences in the way they teach, and I want to get into that. But while we're on this subject, you know, I'm going to take you off a little bit more. Uh, You're a professional educator; you work with educators all the time. So there's quite a bit of speculation today about how we have ignored the basics of what builds self-esteem, and instead have told everyone how perfect they are. And I can understand wanting to compensate for what you went through, what I went through as young people. But the question is, have we overcompensated? Because we have often eliminated competition in the school. So everyone that goes out for the team makes it, even if it's the third or the fourth string. Worse yet, in my view, we have competition where everyone wins. There are no first, second, and thirds. Everyone gets a trophy or a ribbon or whatever. You take a different position and argue that society by and large imposes the idea that we are not good enough not smart enough and so forth and 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 you know i guess where i am is flesh out for us if you will the contrast between the notions of artificially or unrealistically inflating self esteem and the real world where you have to compete to get into the the better schools, although you don't, that competition is fading away now, too. Anybody can get into the schools if they have enough money, I guess. But, you know, are we really building better students, or are we just inflating their notion of how good they are?
3: Well, I think what's been happening is that you can talk and encourage someone all that you want, but nothing changes internally. And I'm of the opinion that it is really dangerous water if you base how you feel about yourself based on what you, whether you're successful or you get A's or whatever. I think it's important to cultivate a sense of goodness and okayness from within that isn't attached to performance. I think that's really, and, and I don't think we do that in this country at all.
1: No, I agree. I totally uh, agree. You know,
3: we, we and, and I think what's happened today is that we've spent so much time building people up, and there's nothing there underneath it to support it. And what's happened in schools is that the kids are not learning at all. They're memorizing and spitting back, and they know it. They They know they're not learning anything. And when they get out of college, there is, uh, they don't have any confidence. They can't compete with the people that are older than they are uh, for these jobs. That's part of why they're not getting hired because they have nothing, they don't feel very good about themselves. They know that they're. You know, they're not telling the truth at some level, that they're not as great as everybody's saying they are.
1: So in in your view, if I've got this right, and and let me make sure I've got it right, Um, if we were to take the time in our education system to differentiate between the quality of a human being as, you know, a a unique gift that that every human being is, and what they do by way of performance, there are two different things here: just because you get a c doesn't mean you're a bad person, uh nor does it mean that you're really stupid, like what you it may be this this function of learning. If we were to take the time to do this kind of differentiation, would we be, have a better uh track record with those people coming out of university today
3: I think that um it has to be a multi. There's several things that have to happen, and one is, first of all, as a country, we have to start loving learning again. That's number one. We have lost that. We have a. We we only care about did you pass the test. It's very much test oriented, and when you focus on the test, all that comes out is memorization. Right. That's number one. Number two is if you can, um, if you can begin to tell the truth about a person by helping them first of all to give, to discover how in the world they work. I mean, most of us have no clue about what makes us tick, and and the fact that and how this amazing computer on top of our head works. We just we don't have that information. Nobody ever asks us. Do you know how to learn? And Dr. Howard Gardner has been talking about his discovery for 40 years and nobody listens to him. Right. And I say it too for 25 years.
1: So number 1, let's let's get the element of loving to learn back into the curriculum and you know Uh, It should outweigh everything else. Number two, let's teach people how to learn, how their brain works, etc. We have a break coming up. When we come back, I want to discuss with you the difference in brains. You say they're not the same same as fingerprints. We'll flesh that out. If you would like to know more about Renee Mullen Masters, her work and book, You Are Smarter Than You Think, visit her website at youarsmarterthanyouthink.com. Now we have a video for you during the break of our guest discussing her work. You can check it out by joining the chat room. Just go to ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor.
6: What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button?
3: With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your title today.
0: Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: so lovely. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we are speaking with Renee Mullen Masters about her work and book You Are Smarter Than You Think. Now, Renee, we just played your second musical choice, Sunshine on My Shoulder, sung by John Denver. So please tell us what's up with this one.
3: Well, I love John Denver, and I love being out I'm a body kinesthetic learner and I love being outside and I love being in the sun and walking through my forest. I have a forest that I live on. And I heard John Denver in person a few weeks before he passed away and it was a very spiritual, enlightening, touching experience.
1: Mm. Uh, I would, you know, I'm just going to venture a guess here. You are uh, more or less a touchy-feely kind of person, kinesthetic. You'd like to hold it, then you, uh, you can feel it. You can uh, you can put that aspect of your brain's senses to work on, um, what shall we say, consuming it from a knowledge standpoint. Is that who you are? That's
3: part of who I am. Um, basically... <laughs> what I learned from Dr. Gardner's things is that I used to think I had to sit in front of a desk to learn something. The truth Mm -hmm. is, because I'm body kinesthetic, I need to be up walking around. I need to be moving in order to get it.
1: Right. Well, let's discuss the nature of our brains. Most think of them as, you know, just similar. I mean, so similar that indeed... Neuroscience today has mapped our brains and so they tell us, you know, this area of the brain performs this function, this uh, area another function and so forth. However, you report research that has shown that intellectual discrimination happens not because of the lack of intelligence or poor teaching, but rather because our brains are more different than our fingerprints. Ergo, the result. Even when a teacher teaches very well, more than half of the students have difficulty receiving and remembering the information being presented. Do you want to unpack this for us? I do,
3: (laughs) because I experienced it, and so have thousands upon thousands of people have experienced it. What happens in the classroom is basically they focus on two skills, linguistic and logical ability, and if you don't have to happen to have your brain, if it doesn't, you know, I know that they've mapped they map out the brain years ago. We had to learn it, and I used a potato to figure out where the different parts were and what they did. I had to do it when I took my master's. Um,
1: They're a little more sophisticated today. Yeah, you know.
3: <laughs> but you know, one of the things, okay, when you use your brain correctly. The way I like to think of it is like freeways because I was living in LA when this came about but it's like when you're using it correctly the information that you're trying to learn gets on these huge freeways that go right into long term memory and one of the things they discovered this last year is that when you learn something a chemical reaction happens and sometimes I think that's when we have the aha experience. It's, in fact, a chemical reaction. And kids today aren't even getting to that part of their brain, except in nursing. And what happens when information gets into long-term memory, it associates with everything else you know about that subject. And it allows you, To critical think. It allows you to think outside the box. It allows you to come up with a new thought. But when you memorize something because you're using your brain incorrectly, all you can do is repeat back. And what kids have told me is that when they memorize on an essay test, they can write maybe a sentence. But when they learn the material. They can write two, three, four pages.
1: Yeah, I, I can <laughs> I relate to that. I once had a philosophy professor, two hour blue book examination, give us one question. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Discuss. Wow. Uh, this was <laughs> wow. upper division ph- philo class, and there were students that were peeing out of there 10 and 15 minutes after it started. Yeah. And I'll tell you, my hand couldn't work when I was done. I don't remember, three blue books or something later. <laughs> <laughs> I see the University of Washington, where my son attends, has adopted some of your work straight from your book. And they reference Dr. Howard's frames of mind, um, as an important element that you have used as, shall we say, a skeleton for your work. you know, Tell us now, then, what, what, what is Dr. Howard's frames of mind?
3: Well, back in the 60s, he um, noticed that his daughter, who seemed really smart when she was under the age of five, all of a sudden when she got into school, they said she wasn't that smart. And he said, wait, there's something wrong here. And so he began to do research, and what he found out is that there were seven areas of intelligence. He now believes there's nine, but I only referenced the first seven. Um, And what? although I think the others are valid, I just don't know how to use them within an academic environment.
1: Right. Well, let's do the seven, and then we can talk about the other two.
3: And so what... Basically what he says is that people are either, okay, I'll go through the seven. Linguistic, people really love words. Logical, they need to have things put to them in a sequential order, and they sometimes are really good at math. Third one is spatial, and spatial people have really good directionality. They love art. As kids, they love coloring the next one is body kinesthetic these are the ones that love recess um, they're good they just like to move they can't it's hard for them to sit still musical people who either play an instrument sing or when music is playing they tap their foot that can indicate also musical intelligence mm-hmm. then there are two that are what we call experiential learners and the first one is a person who understands themselves uh talented in knowing self and they as children they knew exactly what they wanted to eat what they wanted to wear where they want to go even if they couldn't motor it out because their parents wouldn't let them the people that are talented in knowing others are the ones that were the actors they uh um tended to know whether or not somebody was safe or not. They were really good at reading people, that kind of thing. Right. So those are the seven areas that we can use academically. And, and basically what we're talking about is that instead of a student sitting in a classroom being at the effect of the textbook and the teacher, when they know how, what their brain talents are, they can take those talents and they can alter how the information is coming to them so that it works for them so they're not, so that the information gets in almost instantly.
1: Okay I'm going to ask you to give me an example of how you'd all i mean i I understand that if let's say that I'm auditory and so I'm studying. Uh, for me, that would mean uh, read aloud.
3: No. Uh, well, it, it does not know. There's three distinctions. There's auditory, visual, and combination. If you're truly auditory, you have to look at your scores. But some people get, uh, let's say that you are auditory and you get about a, you get 90% when you hear it. So what you would do, and what I did with one of my students, early students, I had her, she had an anatomy and physiology class to study for. Mm -hmm. So I had her put all of her, what she had to learn on a tape so she could listen to it. She was also musical and body kinesthetic. So she could play the piano without thinking. So I had her sit down at the piano and play the piano while she was listening to this tape of this Stuff she had to learn when she got done listening to the tape one time she went to her mom and had her mom test her on all the material that she had just gone through and she Mm -hmm. knew it very well so the next day she took the test and she got an a and 10 days later when i saw her she still knew the material because it was in long-term memory
1: Right, but so, okay, I get that, so, but my question is, how do I adopt it in a classroom if the teacher is just giving me the information they're not using your method uh, and let's say you know i'm uh, well because they because they're speaking it let's say i'm 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 not linguistic, i'm not logical, maybe I'm experiential. Uh, maybe my experiential is also spatial. Uh,
3: okay, let uh, me give you an example.
1: Please, let's say that's we, what I'm looking for.
3: Let's say, that we have, let's say that we have a linguistic teacher. Okay. And one of the things that linguistics teachers do is they love their words, they tell a lot of stories, and they say a whole lot more than is necessary to the spatial mind. Right. The spatial mind likes simplicity. Okay, so... The first thing, the spatial person, when they know this about themselves, what they do is that we instruct them to find what the major headings are going to be for that lecture, which is usually pretty easy these days. So they take those major headings and they put them on like seven pieces of paper, one major heading on each piece of paper. Okay. So the teacher starts the talk and she's talking about uh the first heading. So what we show the student how to use, using colored pens and drawing maps, they take the information that she's saying and simplify it and make a map out of it. So then the next moment when she goes off on a story, they're not freaked out by that, They just let her tell the story, and they listen to it. Then when she comes back and starts talking about heading number five, that's okay. They know exactly where she is. They go to page number five where the heading's there. When she starts talking about it, they hear something that's important. They take their colored pens. They make a map. They put down what's important, and So that, and by the end of the lecture, this person has seven pages of paper, pieces of paper with maps on them with all of the information from the lecture and they have received it in a way that connected and what most students say is that when they do this, they don't really have to go over it much when studying for a test
1: interesting now you've got to be out there talking to teachers because there are a lot of teachers that want to see students notes even have students turn their notes in and uh, expect those notes to be a certain kind of way and i'm not so sure they would honor pictures have you run into that
3: yep yes i have
1: and you tell those teachers
3: (laughs) well what i tell the students it's their responsibility to pull my book out and say look this is what I'm doing. And usually when the teacher sees the book, they go, oh, okay, okay, that's fine. I can live with that. It's the same with um, taking notes in the class. I mean, recording the teacher in the classroom. It's You know, it's you have to ask permission first. Right. I mean, and some teachers don't want that. That's fine. Get the notes from somebody else and then make your own tape afterwards.
1: I've always preferred classes where you know you have a syllabus at the beginning of the year and then it's broken down an outline. That's just, I guess, is my style of learning. You know what to expect when you go in. But I think about so many classes where indeed um, the entire class period can be taken without a thing on the board, without uh, a, a, an overhead, a, a projection of any sort, it is basically all auditory. and. And there you really handicap a large portion of what would be that classroom, those students, do you not?
3: Absolutely. But what I'm my point and my my battle cry is this. Who's the person learning here? Right. It's the student. All right. Let's empower the student. Let's help him learn how he learns so that that the teachers off the hook in a way and their job can be to inspire
5: what, i mean it you,
3: is,
1: go ahead i, to be I mean me. it's
3: okay it's just like you know why would anyone want to learn something unless they had they were inspired to learn it
1: yeah i agree you know
3: and i, I think s- that's the job of the teacher but they they don't seem to want that job
1: What do you think about the standardized methods that we're getting in teaching now, where we have a standardized curriculum, a few standardized textbooks, and there's big money behind those textbooks. That's a whole other issue. Um, Standardized testing and so forth.
3: I hate it. I mean, I think that that's why we're in the issue problem that we're in. The, The whole thing about No Child Left Behind, what it does is it focuses on how do you do on the test? That's what it's focused on. And I know the people who put this together had the idea of wanting to do something to uplift some of the school districts, but what they don't understand is it didn't get the job done. It, it, it focused the energy on passing the test, and when you, if, if that's the only thing that's uh, talked about, and you don't talk to the student and say like in nursing they give tests that the kids can't pass unless they have long unless they have learned it in long term memory. Mhm. And if teachers if a teacher stood up in front of a class and said you're going to get a different kind of test today. It's multiple choice, but you have to really understand the material. And I'm going to help you be successful. I'm going to help you learn how you learn best and give them that information and uplift them so that when I'm up lecturing, I can inspire them and get them excited about the
1: subject we're right back to your first principle children everyone children adults etc it's, it's it's about loving to learn and um how can you do that like you say unless you're inspired uh, to do so um let's let's talk about some of the things that inhibit learning obviously the expectation that i'm stupid um you, you you already pulled up a caricature that I'm going to go ahead and go to but there was also a time when you know boys were supposed to be good at this and girls supposed to be good at that it wasn't that long ago that a Harvard dean was asked to resign because he pointed it out certain anatomical differences uh not just uh you know tested differences how how important uh, is it that we dismiss these ideas, these barriers that give rise to, uh, you know, I've heard young men say, well, I'm not musical, I'm not supposed to be, that's what girls do, or, you know, I'm not interested in dance. And I've, I've heard young girls say, well, math, you know, that's, that, that's what girls just don't do well in math. How important is it that we dismiss that? Uh, you
3: know, we talked about, you know, self-esteem. And I tell you, if you can't be who you are, you're never gonna have self esteem. And one of the things that little kids have, and and in my in the self evaluations that we do in our program, they're based on how you were as a child. We ask you questions how you were as a child. When you are a little kid under the age of five, you are just you. You That's why those kids are so delightful to be around because they are being who they are. And I think we remove ourselves from who we are the minute we step into kindergarten because in that moment, all of a sudden, we are viewed, you are just like everybody else. And nobody helps anybody hold on to the things. When I was a little kid, my spatial abilities, my experiential abilities were popping out of me. That's how I interacted with the world. But the minute they put me in in, in kindergarten, it was like, oh, my gosh, this, I'm like a stranger in a strange land. What is going on here? Well, I guess I better... Do this and act this way, or I won't fit in.
1: You know, we talk a lot today, or we have recently, about left brain, right brain differences, and uh, why some people are, you know, more skilled in a area or in another area. Um, it's been my experience that uh, that really doesn't hold but for an inclination uh, maybe a propensity what are you, what's your thinking there
3: I think it's a it's a piece of information in the puzzle and it has validity and but it doesn't go far enough and and that's that's what concerns me it's it's like Okay, I discovered this 25 years ago, and I've been pretty much only successful in marketing it to nursing because they're the only ones that really require students
1: Okay, you've got me on the edge of my seat and all the listeners. 25 years ago, you discovered something, but I'm going to have to ask you to hold it because in just a few seconds, if I don't, the computer will boot us out and you and I will be having a private conversation. Uh, we're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices and we're grateful you chose to join us. Ravinder and Andrea invite you once again to join them in the chat room at ProvocativeEnlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back after paying some bills.
4: You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
1: Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, Back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Renee Mullen Masters about her book and her work, You Are Smarter Than You Think. In this half hour, we will take your calls. So if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your comments and feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there as well. All right, Renee, we just played a really powerful Song, piece of music, I Dreamed a Dream, performed by Susan Boyle. Why this one?
3: Well, I love the song. And I saw Susan Boyle when she walked out on the stage. And she was frumpy and everybody was judging her. And kind of smirking as she walked out. And then, She opened her mouth, and she blew the entire audience away, and everybody stood up and clapped. And I thought that was the most amazing moment of truth, slapping judgment in the face and saying, hey, you don't need to do that, Just." love me,
1: and accept me as I am. I've often used uh, Susan Boyle as an example of how we can be blindsided by what we think of as context-bound thinking. You know, what on earth is it in our mind that gives rise to the idea that a singer should, should look a certain way? Yeah. And when you disappoint that idea, well, then what? You, you know, we, we find it amusing and we laugh at it and we ridicule it. Uh, but obviously Susan Boyle shows us that uh, that mental shortcut, that heuristic is invalid. Yeah. Which, by the way, uh, before the break I'd asked you about left and right brain. What I meant about that was um, in my experience it's been a predisposition, not a limitation. So, you may be more musically inclined if you're right-brained, left-handed, so to speak. But that doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to master mathematics, and we have many great examples of that. Uh, and vice versa, that's what I had in mind there. But, <clears throat> coming back to that for a second. Every year I see sliding data. That is, if I, if I look at how we're doing in the world as a nation, In our educational system, uh, we're headed on the wrong path. We're sliding downward. Other nations are gaining uh, and making great gains uh, by comparison to us. My question to you, Renee, teaching methods are all important as to how we learn. Is the (laughs) advantage in other nations, is it due to their teaching method Uh, or is there, you know, some other reason that we're missing here?
3: Okay, I I laughed. And the reason I laughed is that teaching method has nothing to do with learning.
1: Okay, cool.
3: Nothing. Tell me what you mean by that. What I mean by that is a teacher could stand up. I had a teacher in college who was 900 years old who was reading his notes and the history of theater from 50 years past. And all he did is read them like he was half dead. Okay. Okay. If I had known how to use my brain correctly, I could have taken that material, learned it, and been inspired by it. Instead, I was bored to death, and I didn't do very well in that class.
1: Okay. So now we have just moved the burden here to the parent. It is the parent's obligation to teach the child how to learn. Okay. Not the school
3: I't <clears throat> think because if de- I
1: understand you, you're basically saying well, look, it doesn't matter what these teachers do as long as our students know how to learn
3: Exactly and I think that's the job of the teacher. I think the teacher needs to wake up to the fact that hey their kids don't your kids don't know how to learn
1: Well they okay but now, now we have the chicken and the egg if they yeah. do wake up, they change the way they teach so we're right back to the same thing. I'm going to reframe the question, and I'm going to ask it this way. Is it the fact that children, young people in other nations have learned how to learn, however they learn that, is that the reason they're advantaged over our own country?
3: I think that in other nations, they still value learning, where the test is not necessarily the most important thing. They require learning, and the kids somehow figure out how to do it,
1: so whereas the, in
3: the United States, we do not value learning at all.
1: So it's the love of learning, again, the inspiration that, that you're back to, that you're saying is the difference. I mean, you, you know, I've got a boy, he's a straight-A student at Gonzaga Prep, and uh, in high school, I've got another one in the University of Washington, was the Spokane Scholar one of them loves to learn because he is intent on going into science with a passion for physics the other one who actually is doing better uh is only interested in what how he can convert what he learns into an income
3: yeah and that's okay because that's a way in um see okay there was a study done with the top level math and science students from our major universities a few years ago it's in one of gardner's book i think it's in the Unschooled mind okay and in that study what they found out is that these kids these are the top kids in the nation from the best schools they were given a math test on material they had gone over in class but the test looked at the problems from a different perspective and you know what none of our kids could answer those questions why because they're not learning they're memorizing people don't understand there's a huge difference between those two activities right and even your son at the university of washington I would bet in some classes he is not learning. He is memorizing.
1: Well, I'm not going to take that that wager because, you know, I I That's certainly okay. know he has the ability to learn.
4: <clears throat> he
1: does. And they have been both my boys have been mind mapping and doing things of that nature for a long time. But my point is I think their advantage is they they know how to learn it isn't so much that they're fired by inspiration or driven with a passion uh, and a love for learning and i know that there are a good deal of students from the orient as a case in point at the university of washington and there's a you know classical joke about uh you know the, the parents of these students they expect them to perform at a higher level than parents in the States expect. And in talking to some of these students, you know, to them, it's not about a love of education either. It's more about uh, meeting some standard of obligation that they sense that they have. So that's why I asked, is is the difference in knowing how to learn or is it really in a passion for learning or, or... you Can know, I, be...
3: to tell you the truth, I really don't know. But I know, okay. If I go a fast, if I if I visualize and do a fast forward, it so much would change if if one teacher in our educational system in a school would require learning in their classroom. And I know for for certain, in one of the schools that uses my program, there was a teacher that did that. Who required real learning these kids in the classroom freaked out they didn't know what to do they went to the learning center to see if they could get some help and that's where they were taught that you're smarter than you think program then they could go back and be okay I know of another situation where the kids were required to learn that it scared them so much that they got the teacher fired.
1: Oh well. Wow. See, and and I look at your material, and and I just blurt this right out here. Good. Where I'm going with all of this is, I believe that we should implement at a basic level of education, and, and maybe you know, uh, I'm I'm not sure what grade, second grade, third grade, fourth. Grade, you you'd be in a better place. We should implement a class. That it's all about learning to learn. You just take your coursework, put the coursework in there and make that a basic class so that a young person in the very beginning, as they're beginning to model learning styles, et cetera, and I don't know, maybe even kindergarten. You again you you'd have to tell me, uh so that they acquire the recognition of how they work individually, how their brain processes information, uh, and how they store this information, so that they build their skills early on. I mean, I know you know this. You see, so many students who miss something in a class, they just miss it. Uh, mathematics is a great place to take it. You, you they, they miss a aspect of of uh, trigonometry and they don't really understand what's involved with cosines and secants and logarithms it's just well I've got a book you know I've got a calculator and I can plug those into formulas later in advanced calculus because they've missed that they're lost they're completely lost so I, I guess my point is if we started teaching children very very young this basic method that you have about how they learn and how they can incorporate that in their learning process wouldn't that make the difference i think it would
3: make it would be part of the solution there have been a, a probably a, a thousand studies done on teacher expectation students will only uh be successful at the level that the student that the teacher expects. So if the teacher expects memorization or is okay with it, that's what the student will give. But if you well, see
1: now you're you, right back to that teacher problem.
3: Well, it it is a joint thing because yes, I think it's important to, for kids to know this early on and I think they could get it, you know, when they're in second grade. It could start early. And, But then there has to be this expectation for learning, which Montessori and some of the other Wald, Waldorf schools expect of the kids.
1: Right. For right. our
3: public schools, we don't expect it.
1: I sometimes look at our public schools and I, I'm convinced that it's not about education at all. It's about socializing young people uh, to take their place in society and, you know, Maybe I'm even a bit of an Orwellian when it comes to that. I could hog all your time, but uh, this is our period to take questions, and we have questions, so I'm going to go to our chat room. Mark in the chat room has this question for you, Rene. He says, many people, including academics and scientists, believe that concepts are fuzzy. That is, they cannot have distinct boundaries, since such boundaries are arbitrary. Of course, such a view has consequences on our thinking and communicating with one another. What are your thoughts on this?
3: That's a very interesting question. (laughs) I think,
1: this is what I think. Go ahead.
3: I think that if you take a concept and you don't get it into long-term memory, it is fuzzy and it, and i think that what he's talking about is is i think that what we do is we take concepts and we hold them in a short-term area and play around with them and they aren't they aren't whole and they don't have any substance to them but if concepts are taken into the long-term memory then something quite magical can happen.
1: Okay, another question out of the chat room. Marie Montessori method identifies sensitive periods in a young child's life in which it is the best time for them to learn a particular thing. When this is addressed, does it make the child more versatile in his ability to learn in different ways?
3: That's a good question. I, I It's true. I, I love the way Maria Montessori teaches because it honors. What what happens is that they honor the talents and the truth of that child. So instead of um, superimposing, you know, like I told the story that when I got into kindergarten, I felt like I was a stranger in a strange land. Mm-hmm. What happens in Montessori is that that, that playtime that we were in before school continued. So I think what it would do is, is as the child went on, I think it would help them to be more in touch with how their brain works because they would be using it for a longer period of time. I think it's possible, but I don't really know.
1: All right. I'm going to jump over here and ask you something your book opens with a self-evaluation and you know I I think everybody should take this evaluation I'm going to ask you about your online in a minute I don't know if it's online but it is in the book what if you fail to identify a clear advantage or what you call brain talent as a result of that self-evaluation what then Renee
3: you know what I've been doing this thing for almost 30 years it's been mm-hmm. in book form for 25.
1: Mm-hmm. I have never encountered that. Never, Every, ever. But, so never. This doesn't happen.
3: It just doesn't happen.
1: <laughs> you remind me of John Kappas. What's, he has a self-evaluation appraisal. Uh, are you, uh, you know, your learning style. Uh, and uh, and if you score 50-50, you're called a somambule because it's also used as a, a scale for... Uh, inducing hypnosis, and he tells me that you know nobody scores fifty fifty unless they belong in an institution, uh, and I score fifty fifty. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you're telling me no one. Okay, I'm going to well, leave that one.
3: Well, no, it's true. I mean, everybody has brain talent. It's
1: everybody, true, everybody. But we a, all do. My question was about identifying a clear advantage. A
3: clear advantage in yeah. in discovering it
1: yeah yeah, I mean to me, a clear advantage would be well you 're primarily you know uh, logical or you 're primarily linguistic or you 're primarily musical, or we get two or three combinations there that you know yeah
3: right
1: but but what if you don 't have that clear, you know I mean everything is coming in well, or more than more than one are coming in pretty close to one another. What then? Well, I, I feel like what
3: happens, because there's so many variables. There's seven different, There's seven, eight, nine, ten. There's ten variables. Right. And we don't just look at one thing. You, you're not just talented in one thing. You have a variety of talents in, in a variety of different degrees. And when people go through this self-evaluation, you get a very clear picture of where your talents are. Now, there might be a one, and as we describe what the talents are, you begin to say, oh, yeah, that is me. I do do that. And so the self-evaluation is kind of an indicator that helps to get people back to the awareness that they had when they were little, tiny kids.
1: All right, cool. A couple quick ones because we've only got a couple of minutes here. The first one, you took this to an online course. What's the deal with an online course and how can our people, how can the audience get to it?
3: Okay, they can get to it by going to my website. The online course is the book in an online form with video and games and all kinds of things, and you can go through the program in two hours. You have one month to go back and reintroduce yourself to whatever was there and make sure you got it right. You take two self-evaluations to find out your brain talents, and then we show you very specifically what you're to do when you're reading a textbook, when you're listening to a lecture, when you're studying for a test, and when you're when you're taking a test, and when you get through with that two-hour program, or you read the book, it's the same thing. And when you sign up for the online program, you get a copy of the book. So um, it's the best deal.
1: And now that's your website. That's youaresmarterthanyouthink right? Right.
3: And they go. They can find it there, and they can sign up for the program. Right there, it's all online. They can do it with a computer or a tablet, and it's, it takes about two hours to go through. Um, and I have uh, nursing students that, that just called me, and they're going to do it in two hours. They're going to study for the test, and I know that when they take the test, they're going to have a 20-point increase from what they did before.
1: I don't see how someone can go through your material and not gain. All right, one last question. 30 seconds. If our audience wants to learn more about you or reach you, how do they do that other than your website?
3: Well, the best way on the web. well, if you want to email me, my email is yastyt at mind.net, but you can get all this on the website. My phone number is there. You can call me. Um, You know, I'm here.
1: (laughs) Okay, great. And listen, if you're a teacher out there, do. You know, take advantage of this. Take a look at this material at least. Give Renee some great uh, feedback. All right, I'm sorry, but we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. And I want to thank our guest, Renee. You're great. I appreciate you and all of you out there for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week. Same time, same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. And remember, if you have comments on our show, do please let me know. Okay, until next time, wherever you are on the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters.